Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. And we have another special guest host this week, Emma Whitford. Hi, Amber. It's really nice to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, important question for everyone. Oh, and boy. I'm, I'm glad to have some new blood for this. Yeah. How do you all feel about Halloween? Um. Oh, no. I got an um to start. <laughs> I'm I'm a little bit of a Scrooge when it comes to Halloween, I have to say. Alex. Yeah. And I um now I, I observe it in the watching of horror movies, which we've talked about before. Okay, well that's great. I get that'll, into that. That'll get, but in, that'll get there for me. And I of course eat candy. Um but I haven't I have <laughs> So what I'm hearing you say is you love Halloween. Yeah, but I basically what that means is that I don't dress up. I haven't dressed up since I think I don't even think I dressed up in college, to be honest, which is when a lot of wow. people go crazy on Halloween. But All right, Emma, where Emma, do you how land? About you? Yeah, I mean, I can never. So there's always this day for me, usually the day before Halloween, that is just like, well, Halloween itself is fun. The day before, the stress of coming up with a potential costume that's mm. like not really lame is just like crushing. Um, but. You know, you know. I, I quit the Pro Se podcast. I'm quitting the show. <laughs> That's... Uh, it's my holiday, you guys. What are we talking about here? Well, what it. Emma said actually kind of gets to why I, I retired from the costume game because I think too much of, pressure. I think yeah. of myself as like a person with who's like somewhat humorous and clever. Sure. And then when I just began to collapse under the pressure of having to do something clever, I just opted <laughs> out of the game entirely. Um, well, yeah. For me, yeah. Pl- yeah this speak is on it. my time. This is when I'm most alive. Okay. Uh, candy love. <laughs> Horror movies, love. Uh, really anything spooky, I'm into it. Yeah. And costumes are essentially just a way for me to get to be crafty for no reason. Okay. Oh, so sure. I love it all. Well, what do we have on? Do you want to tell the people what well, you have on deck this year? I'm or? actually going out of town for a wedding, so I don't have the big plans I normally do. But, you know, I made Don some bits and pieces from a former costume. I got some devil ears around. We'll, we'll do something. I will acknowledge the day. I mean, don't pretend like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know these people, but you could go as zombie wedding guest uh, uh that's that's just wearing your regular clothes and like, like you know, makeup. Makeup. You know, it was a makeup yeah. i mean that's you don't even need to worry about the about the costume but well i mean i may have to implement that i am going home to pack <laughs> after this to go okay. away for the wedding so all right packing a little extra makeup for that wedding yes uh so what do we got on tap for uh, for this week we have a really nice show emma and i got to talk to tim ryan he's on our employment authority team mm-hmm. and he lays down um a story that's really happening all around the nation where a bunch of industries have workers going on strike a lot yep. of people are calling it Striketober, mm-hmm. which, you know, I love a silly little name. Yes. Uh, but Tim's, as, as just established <laughs> as about just, all the, all the Halloween all. stuff. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Tim actually breaks down what exactly that means and why we're seeing this big rise right now. But before we get into that story, we do have a lot of news to cover today. And I'm really excited for the first story where Emma's going to give us some reporting that she's actually done herself. Yeah. Um, so I can jump right into it. Um, so first of all, thank you guys for having me. I was thinking about coming on here, and I actually, I usually listen to you guys when I'm washing dishes at night. It's very soothing, so it's fun to be on the other side of the microphone. We've never been called soothing, but I like that. Yeah, wow. That's, <laughs> that's really something. <laughs> yeah, so today I wanted to get into this story that I've actually been covering sort of nonstop mm-hmm. since way back in March 2020. Uh, talk about spooky times. Yes. <laughs> sure. Um, One long Halloween, really. <laughs> So, yeah, and that has been covering um, New York State's policies around eviction prevention during the pandemic. Um, So the big, big picture is that, you know, obviously all across the country, states and at the federal level, there have been measures to keep people in their homes during the global pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But New York is, you know, you think of it as a real real estate hub. 
Um, but it's also a blue state with a really vibrant, kind of constantly growing tenant movement. And that's resulted in some of the strongest and longest lasting uh, eviction protections in the country. Um, New York has a law in effect now that's in place through actually January 15th. That's mm-hmm. going to carry us all the way through this year. So um, this week, I happened to do two stories about the concept of, quote unquote, hardship during the coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. And one involves tenants and the other involves low-income homeowners. So it's kind of a nice balance there. Yeah, I'm so glad we we have you in the chair this week. I honestly, I had told Amber, I kind of, we, we wanted you to be, come on as a guest several times because you've been writing about this, like you say, for like 18 months. Uh, now you're in the host chair as well. Um, but we, uh, there's so many strands to this and you wrote some really interesting stories this week. Um, what do we need to know? Why are we talking about it this week? Yeah. So uh, the broader context is, well, I'm going to roll the clock back a little bit. But basically around Christmas time, New York passed a bill that cleared the way for tenants and small homeowners to essentially pause the eviction, the cases against them that they're dealing with by filling out a form. And on the form, you say, you know, I have been struggling financially during the pandemic or if I were to move, that would be a serious health risk. Yeah. Um, and that was a pretty big win for tenants. You know, it was sort of like one thing shy of just a full moratorium. You like, fill out one piece of paper and say, I have experienced hardship. And obviously you're attesting to it. You know, it's you're like right. a legal document. But yeah. um, so but in August, um, there's been a group of landlord plaintiffs that have been trying to overturn this law for months now since mm-hmm. the spring. So they won an emergency injunction from the U.S. Supreme Court in August. Um, it was one of those shadow docket unsigned opinions right. dropped late at night and everyone kind of ran around like crazy. <laughs> um, but uh, the gist in this very short opinion was that uh, there was a due process issue. The fact that tenants could fill out these forms and their landlords couldn't really effectively challenge them. That was the gist. So uh, New York's state legislature immediately kind of acted on that. They had an emergency session um, and they're like, we're going to tweak this. We're going to change this. So you can still fill out that form. But now if I'm a tenant and I say I have a hardship, you know, my landlord has an opportunity to file a motion to challenge. So now we're kind of seeing how this opportunity for the other side to step in is like playing out. Yeah, that's really interesting to see how hardship plays out in the face of a pandemic where there's a lot of hardship to go around. So what are we actually seeing progress in these eviction cases? Yeah. And so, foreclosure, I guess. As well. Yeah. So I'll start with the homeowner story I did today because it was interesting, um, almost just for the fact that I got to go to court. Um, you know, a lot yeah. of things have been happening virtually and remotely. Um, so this was an example. Brooklyn Supreme Court, which is the state level court that handles civil matters. Mm-hmm. There was a big uh, Monday was the first day of this pretty large calendar stretching over a couple weeks this fall of hundreds of like very old foreclosure cases. So last week I started hearing some um, from some legal service providers who were raising the alarm about this physical notice that was going out to these homeowners. And they were describing it as, quote, intimidating and threatening. Basically, it said to the homeowner, you have to come into court. You're going to have a, quote unquote, hardship hearing. Um, you have to bring documents with you about your financial situation. Mm-hmm. And if you don't come, you could lose your case. OK. Um, what the notice did not mention was anything about the law that I just told you about. Um, you know, it didn't say here's a hardship form. Fill it out. We'll see you in January. So, yeah, um, you know, these legal service provider groups kind of raised the alarm about it. Um, I did some reporting. Some other outlets did some reporting. So uh, that was all last week. 
Monday was day one of the calendar, so I went to check it out. Mm -hmm. And it was immediately clear that the judge, um, this is Justice Lawrence Nipel, he's mm -hmm. a Brooklyn Supreme Court judge, had kind of backed off. Um, you know, one example was you got to the hallway and there was like red Sharpie over all the calendar notices that said <laughs> status conference. You know, there was like no mention of hardship hearing. Yeah. So we go into the courtroom. And again, the big concern was that the judge was going to be potentially interrogating people. Right. Sort of prove your hardship was like the worst outcome. Mm -hmm. um, instead, what he did is he like very quickly ran through a list of 40 cases. And if anyone, if like either party had a lawyer there and they were just like, there's hardship present, he would just like nod, take that, you know, mark it off the calendar and move on. Rather than have to go with like your hat, your hat in your hand and like provide, I don't know, bank statements or some kind of. Right. Proof of hardship. I mean, it's a it's a simple sort of step to clear now. Right. 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 So yeah. so basically, I you know, I talked to attorneys who represent, you know, vulnerable low income homeowners afterwards. And they were like relieved that there's no interrogation. Mm -hmm. But it was also like, well, why are we having these calendars? Why are we asking people to come in? It raises questions about the digital divide here. You know, yes. not everyone has access to a laptop for Zoom. So I think the attorneys say, well, you should have like a really accessible phone line, you know, because mm -hmm. most people have a cell phone. Um, yeah. And then what was really obvious to me was that despite these notices going out, you know, heart like I talked to one homeowner who actually showed up on that first calendar. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like there's no longer a risk of serious consequence for people who miss these. Yeah. But what it leaves you with is like, is the information about these legal protections really getting out to people? Yeah. Um, I talked to this woman and she didn't want to have her name in the press, but she said, you know, I just heard a lot of names of people that just didn't show up, you know, that got called in court. And I don't think they want to lose their homes. I just think they're overwhelmed after coming out of a pandemic. So it just raises this question of, you know, we've got until mid-January with this law in place, our homeowners like getting the information and how do we get it to? Yeah. If you think you have a bright line until you have to do something and then you get a notice in the mail saying you have to go to court right now or you might lose your house. Obviously, that's understandable that that might light a fire under some people. But you say the judge sort of backed off on that. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was and we should just just to make really clear what we're talking about. That was about homeowners and foreclosures. Right? right. But you also wrote about tenants facing eviction, which is sort of a it's related. But there's like a subset of cases there that you also wrote about. What was that all about? Yeah. So basically, this law limiting foreclosures, it's the same law. Right. So and this is just the tenant side of it. So um, I mentioned at the top, there's this same group of landlords that have been challenging New mm -hmm. York's eviction protections all year, basically. They had their victory at the Supreme Court. Then they went back to the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit was like, well, now the law has been changed, so you have to basically go file a new complaint. Mm -hmm. So they're back kind of at the drawing board. Um, but they're basically insisting that despite what the state legislators did, this law is still violating their due process um, mm -hmm. because even though they can technically challenge a hardship form in the law, it says they're doing so under, quote, penalty of perjury. And they have to say they have a, quote, good faith belief that there is no hardship mm -hmm. to get to the hearing stage. So they're saying, like, that's too risky. We don't know information about our tenants like. It's all well and good that you put this in the law, but effectively the courthouse door is still barred to us. So what happened this week? is two pro-tenant groups who are obviously of the opinion that they want this law upheld. Like yeah. there's no, 
they're not pretending to be like have no stake in the game. Yeah. But they they want to intervene in the case and that's Make the Road New York, which is a large nonprofit organization, grassroots group that represents a lot of um you know, working class New Yorkers. Um and also Housing Court Answers, which is a group that provides answers for people in housing court. Good name. Good name for them. <laughs> um so they're trying to intervene in this suit and they um you know, they made the standard things you have to say if you want to intervene. So it's like this suit impacts us. We have like sort of invaluable information that the judge should be able to see. Yeah. So they also pulled together some early examples where landlords are indeed going ahead and filing these motions to try to challenge hardship. So they're like, you guys say you're it's too risky. You're not doing this. We've got some early examples. People are actually doing this. Um and I just thought this was interesting because court reporting is such a useful way to like follow. So a bill passes and then like, how is it really playing out on the ground? Exactly. Um, so attached to their filing, they had some examples of cases. So there was one where a judge in the Bronx granted a hearing after the landlord submitted an affidavit, basically saying that he has seen on his security cameras, his tenant going going to work and returning from work at the same time consistently, like before and during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that was his basis for like a consistent work schedule. So like that was his basis for challenging hardship and the judge granted it. So like, it's not like he's said, yes, this tenant has no hardship, but there's at least going to be a hearing. And yeah. that's like the next step. As, as an early threshold or whatever. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there was a judge in Brooklyn who uh, pulled up some social media posts of their tenant and that according to the, ju the judge's uh, order, he said, quote, these were pictures of the tenants, quote, engaged in various activities that are inconsistent with the proposition that they have suffered financial hardships. That's very vaguely worded. And now my mind is running rampant with all the things that that could be. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think sometimes what you see in these cases is like my tenant got a new car. Right. You know, the sorts sure. of like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the judge called these posts, quote, exactly the kind of discrete, specific, non-conclusory facts and therefore made in good faith upon which to form a belief that respondent has not suffered a pandemic related hardship. So now, again, there's going to be a hearing. Um, so, again, it's still early days, but I just thought this was an interesting window into how this is starting to play out. Yeah, I'm glad you brought those examples because we have talked a few times during the pandemic on Pro Se about all the, the eviction moratoriums and the various laws states were enacting. And it is interesting as we move into the next phase of the pandemic, how this is going to play out. But what's next in the story? I mean, it seems like we're at least in a bit of a holding pattern until January. Yes. Um, so I'm definitely looking ahead. Um, you know, I'm sure again, talking about this earlier on the podcast, there was this early sort of cry uh, from tenant groups being like, there's going to be a quote unquote wave of, wave of evictions. So what we're going to see is like, at the end of the day, these are courts where papers being pushed around, there are backlogs. So it's going to be this probably relatively slow return to quote unquote normal. So I'm going to be looking at that. And then, you know, it seems unlikely New York is going to extend this law again, but they did do it twice. And like, <laughs> you sort of, it's like, accept that you can't expect what to know has been kind of the rule of the game. I don't really make COVID-related predictions yeah, anymore. Exactly. I, yeah, I, I, I got out of that game a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but so the other thing I'm looking at quite closely is, uh, you know, the federal government across two big stimulus packages put a huge, 
billions and billions of dollars um, into federal rental assistance. Um, and that went all over the country. But New York got one of the biggest allotments. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time parsing out how much of that money is actually going to rent and utility assistance. But New York got like a little north of $2 billion. Yeah. Um, so there was early scrutiny. The program was really slow to get off the ground. Um, there was kind of a blip where our governor resigned and then we got a new governor and there Correct. was a lot going on. Yes. Um, governor Cuomo resigned. Now we have Governor Kathy Hochul and she's really prioritized this. The program has sped up a lot. And now we're at the point where basically the coffers have almost run dry. So New York kind of went from the bottom of the pack to the top. And next, the state is taking steps to request more money because what people all predicted, which was going to be the case, is that just the need far outstrips the supply. So I'm going to be following that for sure. All right, Emma, thanks for breaking that all down for us. Obviously, super interesting cases, and we look forward to hearing more. Uh, for the next story this week, we're going to talk about the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which we don't talk about a lot. Yay, that's what I always want to Derivatives talk about. regulation, not exactly our wheelhouse, but uh, the commission actually made a big splash. Uh, last week, they awarded a record $200 million to a whistleblower who uh, basically helped regulators uncover the manipulation of key interest rate benchmarks. So just helping with financial crime. Again, it's a $200 million whistleblower award, and this obviously got the attention of lawyers who represent whistleblowers and uh, lawyers who defend companies in financial cases. Um, and it carries a lot of important lessons in an area of the law that we don't often talk about. So I thought we could spend some time uh, breaking it down here. Yeah, that's a big figure. So, of course, you know, again, catnip for Pro Seda also be yeah. interested in If somebody's about handing it. out nine-figure awards, we're, we're going to do something. Yeah, I mean, especially for a whistleblower um, – yeah. Action. That's a really big number. So what exactly was the whistleblower getting that money for? So on paper, officially, we don't actually know much about the case. The CFTC's uh, put out this note that announced the award and it was heavily redacted. And it said only that this individual was being paid this money for, quote, providing information in an open investigation that led to a successful enforcement action. The uh, law firm that represented the whistleblower added just slightly more detail, saying that uh, its client provided the commission, another U.S. regulator, and a foreign regulator with uh, documents and trading information in 2012, which concerned, quote, manipulation of crucial financial benchmarks used by global banks. Now, um, so that's all we had. It was just, you know, you see this sometimes in sensitive areas of law, like helped with an enforcement action, and that's kind right. of the end of it. But uh, Dean Seal, who wrote the story for us, uh, said that those details and and the timeline as well broadly link up with a $2.5 billion settlement um, that Deutsche Bank agreed to pay the DOJ in 2015 over manipulating LIBOR. That's the London Interbank Offered Rate. And we are not going to... You, you can stick around for our spinoff LIBOR podcast Look, sometime in the next year, but... I'm yeah. thrilled this is about LIBOR because <laughs> when you were describing that, that would have been my only guess and only because it's one of the few like things that you can manipulate in that way that I remember what it is. It's one of the hottest rate benchmarks, I think, if sure. you were to if you were to rank them. No, but these are these are uh, bench uh, rate benchmarks that like underpin billions of dollars worth of financial transactions 
and banks are often investigated for manipulating them and you know getting There's a leg antitrust up. actions over them. That's how I, I know about and it. getting a leg yeah. up in trading, and that's how it is. We don't. That's really not that important. But the point is, there was this huge settlement with Deutsche Bank in 2015, which broadly matches the fact pattern here. The Wall Street Journal reported straight up reported that it was Deutsche Bank, uh, citing anonymous sources. We couldn't confirm it ourselves. But it seems pretty likely this is related to, and, and that was a huge settlement at the time, and now this appears to be a whistleblower award arising from it. Yeah, so with that context, let's just get back to that 200 million figure. It's pretty big. Yes, um, so this is believed, I, I mentioned it was a record, and it's a record not only for the CFTC's whistleblower program, but it's also believed to be for, uh, the highest number in even relation to other whistleblower programs that are used like the IRS and the same type of programs that exist in state and federal false claims acts. So uh, I was talking to John Hill, who actually was on was on the show with us last week, and he says sometimes corporate crime does pay if you, <laughs> if you tell someone about it. Uh, 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 that's great. I take he he knows more about that than I do. But anyway, um, part of the reason that it's be, that it's so big though is because of its likely connection to this Deutsche Bank thing. It's obviously related to the amount of the enforcement so that it, it, st it stands to reason that if you got a $2.5 billion settlement and you helped with it, you could get a pretty good chunk of change here. The attorneys that spoke to Dean said they were also taken aback just because I guess in like whistleblower lawyer circles, the CFTC's program is seen as like pretty small and unlikely to hand out awards of this size. And for context, this $200 million award brings the total amount awarded under this program in its history to $300 million. Wow, so whoa. they they tripled it in one move, basically. There was a pool of $100 million, and then they did a $200 million uh, award. That's really, okay, so you take this relatively small program and then punch way above its weight with just one mm -hmm. whistleblower. Yeah. Um, what are some of the takeaways from this, since it seems like this probably surprised a lot of people? Yeah, well, the first one is fairly obvious, and it's something that, uh, attorneys who represent whistleblowers say all the time, um, if you give people a lot of money for exposing financial wrongdoing, you are more likely to incentivize other people to do it. And that is sort of the <laughs> entire point of whistleblowers is like, if you, if you blow the whistle on, you know, people doing bad stuff, we will, we will compensate you and maybe we will sort of embolden other people with something resembling a clean conscience in corporate America to come forward as well. Um, so, and you know, that, that is, that is why the programs are structured this way. And this of course is among the biggest actions ever taken. Uh, there's another interesting wrinkle though, within the facts of the case, um, the agency's note that announced this award said that it actually turned away this whistleblower's initial, uh, sort of submission to them. They, that this person came forward with documents and they actually said, this actually isn't good enough. This doesn't help us. You're not getting anything, but the whistleblower, I guess then persisted, uh, supplemented their um, submission to the commission and basically gave them more details. And then the claim moved ahead and ended in this award. So the big takeaway there, according to uh, uh, Dean's reporting, which we will link as always, and I would recommend everybody read it, is that persistence is key. If you're thinking about, if you're trying to call out wrongdoing and the government gives you the stiff arm, you can try and, you know, just kind of improve your case a little bit. It won't surprise you to learn that lawyers who represent whistleblowers also said, this is why you should get a lawyer if you're considering <laughs> going forward and you run into some problems here. We, the humble whistleblowers bar, 
can help you with your with your documents and, and things like that. So you would expect them to say that, but there's I'm, I'm, I'm certain there's there's truth to that. Attorneys also told Dean that uh, this whistleblower came forward even after it was pretty well known that there was an investigation underway. It wasn't like this person came forward with information that prompted an investigation. That's kind of interesting because you don't always think about it at that stage. Some, I think like the lay person that's never really been involved in this might think like, oh, they're tipsters. So yeah, it has yeah. to be the beginning. Yeah, no. And they were saying, so like it, it, it means that if you think you have some information and the government's already sort of poking around, the door's still open for you to be a whistleblower and things like that. Um uh, one final note, too, uh, there was a um, part of the award, as I, as I mentioned, was tied not only to the tipsters' um, assistance to the CFTC, but also to a foreign regulator. And again, because of the context of what we know about the prior settlement, we're pretty sure that was the UK Financial Conduct Authority. Um, but there was one commissioner um, who expressed some reservations about that part of the award um, that came from a commissioner named Dawn Stump, and she basically disagreed with inflating the award based on the help to that foreign regulator. She basically thought that the that the connection was a little flimsy on that front. And she said that the CFTC shouldn't just open up the purse strings without careful analysis. Here was her, her quote. I believe we need to take an especially close look at cases where a whistleblower asks the commission to tap its limited consumer protection fund for an award relating to an action by a foreign futures authority to address harm outside the United States. And you see her reference the uh, this this fund where um, these penalties get paid out of. It comes from money that's pooled by sanctions, penalties, and some other things. Uh, it was actually the subject of some heated legislative battles earlier this year. There was worry that it, like it was going to run dry. It got reauthorized in a in a spending bill. Um, but this is clearly something that's you know close to her heart. And if people think that that the you know the CFTC whistleblower program is now like open for business. There's at least one commissioner here who thinks, you know, in this specific regard, you know, with foreign regulatory uh, authorities, you need to prove it uh, maybe a little stronger than you might otherwise have. Over the past month, workers across the country have been going on strike. Some have even called the recent uptick in labor action striketober. But what's causing large groups of workers in industries as varied as film production, manufacturing, and healthcare all to take collective action? Here to explain what's going on in the labor market is one of our Employment Authority senior reporters, Tim Ryan. Thanks for coming to the show, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. You know, I always want to dig into labor stories. I know we both love this area of the law. But let's just start with sort of a big rundown. I kind of ticked off a few industries that are seeing strikes. What have you been seeing going on this past month? Yeah, so like you mentioned, there are a lot of varied industries that are joining this wave of strikes or strike authorizations. Um, the biggest one that's still ongoing is at John Deere, uh, where UAW workers uh, went on strike. About 10,000 people are still uh, off the job. Um, this one's interesting, too, because workers rejected a tentative contract agreement before uh, before starting the strike. We've also heard a lot about the film production uh, strike authorization with IATSE. Uh, that would cover about 60,000 workers, um, but they've reached some tentative agreements, so that one is a hold off for now. Um, 
We also have a few uh, healthcare industry strikes that are lined up. Um, a big one out in California, which with about thirty-one thousand workers at Kaiser Permanente, um, and then there are some additional ones. Uh, the Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations has a tracker they keep, and they've tracked more than two hundred fifty strikes since the beginning of the year. Now they count each local that goes on strike separately, but it still gives you a ballpark idea of how many we're talking about. Yeah, so that's a big universe of workers who are either on strike or actively considering it right now. Um, So I thought you could sort of get into why the time is so ripe in so many industries for this right now. Yeah, I think like uh, everything that we talk about these days, the pandemic is really uh, influencing this. Um, You'll notice a lot of the workers uh, were in categories that are that were deemed essential in the early days of the pandemic. You know, we have healthcare manufacturing, things like that, where the workers continued going to um, plants and facilities and putting up with working conditions that they weren't, you know, exactly thrilled with over time. Um, And, you know, especially in healthcare, you saw this. I talked to a nurse who uh, also is an official with the the union that has authorized a strike. Um, She mentioned, you know, that nurses had to pick up extra shifts Um, Even some of them had to stay in hotel rooms so they weren't going home to their families after working with COVID patients. So just those uh, those conditions have kind of made workers feel a little uh, underappreciated now that they're up for contract negotiations. Um, Just using that Kaiser example again, the company proposed a 1% wage increase as well as this uh, two-tiered wage system where uh, new workers are paid less than current employees. And the employees just kind of saw that as uh, the word she used was a slap in the face. So mm-hmm. um, that, that's one major contribution. Yeah, I can totally understand those pressures caused by the pandemic. I think most people with jobs have felt that in some way, even if it's not as dire as for the healthcare industry. Um, but are there other factors at play here, too, that are driving up the number of strikes and, and potential strikes? Yeah, definitely the labor market is another Thing that people I talked to continued mentioning. Um, just some top line numbers. Uh, there are most recent numbers showed about 10 million uh, job openings, which is extremely high. And then there were 5 million more workers out of the labor force than before the pandemic. So companies are having a hard time hiring. And that contributes to kind of a, a, a sense of empowerment among workers. People that I talked to said, um, you know, they, these people know that if they, uh, if they need to, they can find another job. And they also know that their employers aren't going to have the easiest time replacing them um, if they are to, you know, demand higher wages, things like that. So it's, it's an empowering force with the tight labor market that the pandemic has contributed to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you've got ticked off workers who think that they're not being treated well during a global pandemic. And then they're like, oh, And you may not be able to replace me. Let me think about my options. (laughs) Yeah. So something else I really liked about your story is you talked about historical precedent for this kind of thing. Um, So could you sort of summarize some of that for us, like times in the past or even the recent past when there's been a big upswing in strike activity? Yeah. So this was uh, one question that I asked people that I don't know if they loved me asking because (laughs) it's asking them to compare the pandemic to something, which is really hard. Sure. Um, so uh, people you know, would mention right after World War II, there was kind of this wave, but the, the more relevant example that they 
drew to was the um, wave of teacher strikes in about 2018, 2019. One thing that the teacher strikes have in common with uh, the current moment is uh, that that was happening in response to uh, budget cuts that states uh, put in place due to the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you know, the economy had recovered and teachers were kind of saying, we want better pay, more resources, things like that. And now you have the pandemic's in a different stage. The economy has, you know, more or less stabilized in in some respects. And so workers are, you know, again, seeking to um, get rid of some of the uh, actions that companies took to uh, respond to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that really does put it in perspective because I think a lot of people paid attention when there were teachers that seemed to be on strike in multiple states, you know, at that time. And, and now we're seeing it just sort of more uh, irrespective of industry. It seems like workers are just really upset in general. Um, when workers are this mad in the country and they start seeing a bunch of high profile strikes like John Deere or um, some of the others you mentioned at the start of the show, is this, um, I mean, I hate to use the word contagious, but like, do people get ideas? What what happens next for workers? You know, I couldn't think of a different word either when I was <laughs> asking people about this. Um, but yeah, that's what uh, people said is that it's it's kind of the idea behind unions, right, is the idea of solidarity that you hear that word a lot. Um, and when you have multiple uh, multiple groups of workers going on strike over a lot of the same issues, it raises those issues in people's minds. One person I spoke with used uh, consciousness. Um, workers will realize that a lot of other people are experiencing what they are. And so these strike actions and protests more generally can spread among uh, different workplaces for sure. Yeah. So I've got kind of a two-part question here. Um, I mean, first of all, when you were talking to people, did you get a sense of how long this strike wave could last? Uh, That's also very hard to say because Mm -hmm. it requires you to kind of predict um, how long some of these conditions that we talked about earlier will persist. I think the general consensus was that it's not going to be just kind of a quick blip that some of these strikes have been going on for a while and there are some that, you know, predate uh, this little month long period that we've been discussing. So I guess some of the prognostication too, Tim is like, how bad is our economy for workers? <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> that's a big, it's a really big question I answer on this podcast because it seems like what we're talking about are some really fundamental things going on in our economy. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's it's hard to predict um, how long it'll how long it'll go on, I think, for those reasons. Yeah. I mean, one other thing that this was kind of the note you ended on, um, but what this means for unions more generally, like the stakes are pretty high in this moment, uh, according to experts who you talk to. Right. Because the conditions are pretty good for strikes. So I imagine there's some pressure to deliver. Yeah. And unions certainly see this as an opportunity um, and an opportunity to extend not just actions in, at unionized workplaces, but also into places that aren't unionized yet. Liz Scholler, who leads the AFL-CIO, uh, which she was speaking at an event in Washington earlier this month, she phrased it as, we're not experiencing a labor shortage, but we're experiencing a shortage of jobs that people want to do. Uh, and, and she kind of pitched unions as the response to that. So, And she tied that into all these different actions that we're seeing. So when you couple the conditions that we've talked about with 
other things like the political changes in Washington and a National Labor Relations Board that's seen as much more union friendly. I think that people on the union side definitely see this as an opportunity to increase union power. And people on the management side are kind of saying, if unions don't come out of this with that increased power, what does that mean? So I I think it is kind of a turning point moment. Well, we'll be watching along with everyone else, and um, we'll have you back on to tell us how some of this turns out as we move forward, Tim. Thanks for bringing it to the show today. All right, great. Thanks for having me. in our show is something offbeat. And Alex, what did you bring for us this week? So um, when I read this headline story on our site, it says, Atari lawyers can't play video games at IP trial, judge says. Oh, no. And when I read this, <laughs> my poisoned brain appended not until they've finished their homework, mister. I was going to make some kind of mom you joke, got- <laughs> so I'm so glad you said that. That's, 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 <laughs> but anyway, the point is Atari is in court in California And uh, a California federal judge really kind of bummed everyone out by saying that lawyers for Atari are not allowed to play video games during this trial. Why even be a lawyer for Atari if you can't play the video game in court? That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) I, uh, you know, at had he done so, I would I would imagine he would move from, you know, not a regular judge, but a cool judge. (laughs) because You can play video games in court. Um, The legal backdrop is. Not all that interesting, but it's a formality. Let's talk about it. Um, Atari is uh, preparing to go to trial. They're in jury selection, actually, in California for a trademark and copyright case against this online marketplace called Redbubble, which sells like um, kind of like a cafe press type of thing where Mm, you can get like little trinkets, T-shirts, whatever, adorned Mm. with like pop art. Yeah, like a fandom type thing. Yeah. So the Atari was saying that Redbubble had been selling products bearing Atari's proprietary logo and also screenshots from its like, you know, legend, like famous video games like Pong, Asteroids, Centipede, Breakout. Um, And uh, just in the run up to trial here, Atari wanted to actually bring the iconic 2600 series console and the joystick to provide uh, a live video game demonstration for the jury. Um, Redbubble objected to it. It's kind of boring. They all it was was that they didn't ask in time. Oh, that's the worst. It's thing not even ever. It's I was kind of good reason. I was kind of busting on the judge for harshing everyone's vibe. But really, if they'd have just like done it in a timely fashion, he probably would have approved it. He said, "Quote: Atari's failure to produce these materials previously was neither substantially justified nor harmless. The parties are literally on the eve of trial. Jury selection will occur tomorrow, and there is no reason this evidence could not have been produced earlier." Sounds like he's saying, guys. You you gotta you, you gotta play within the lines here. I'm willing to like l- let you guys hop on the sticks and go. Okay, a lot of people really dread being called for jury duty, but can you imagine oh, how much more fun it would be if you're called in and you get seated on a jury and then you're like, well, just kick off this case. Let me get out the Atari. <laughs> Do well, some video game play. I mean, people watch that on YouTube all the time. People watch, there's yeah, Twitch, you know, whatever. Yeah, because I'm on a str- I mean, it wasn't that the jurors were playing uh, no, video but, games, like, they but that would be to cool. watch it. Yes. Yeah. 
It's at this point, I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think about this? Emma, do you have any strong video game takes or video game in court takes? I don't so know. sadly, no. I mean, this is just me. Not only am I a bummer about Halloween, but like <laughs> also did not really play video games at all growing up. Okay. Um, but yeah, I just have to imagine Redbubble would be, you know, they would they feel pressure to like one up Atari if Atari was able to show the video game? I mean, and they're probably kind of glad that it didn't get to this point. I mean, yeah. I will say I a couple things about this. Uh, number one, I was not an Atari girl. I was a classic Nintendo. Yeah. So I'd need some uh, red bubble, bubble bobble shirts or something instead <laughs> of like asteroids. Um, but this does make me think like what other unusual things have people asked to do in court? There, there could be any number of good things that tie into cases other than just video games yeah i don't i mean i just it would have been a cool scene you know i mean i can imagine it it's like ladies and gentlemen of the jury here we are level eight as we try to kill the giant <laughs> dianaga in star wars shadows of the empire oh very specific he's Love got that. a million tentacles that can harm sure. us did i mention we're underwater <laughs> i rest my case um this actually called to mind when i was a senior in high school we had really weird scheduling that isn't worth explaining, but it basically allowed for up to like almost two hours of free time. Oh, nice. And because I was a senior and I, I was in choir and we used to hook up the 64 to a projector mm. and oh. put it on the back of the choir room, which had like a like a 20 or 30 uh -huh. foot ceiling or something. And we would just wild away in there for like, for Amazing. like, ha for like actually, half an hour. What I'm hearing here is number one, your high school experience was very cool. Yeah. Number two. And I was one of the coolest people in it. That's, I believe it. <laughs> to my core. I don't know if you heard. I played video games at school. <laughs> so, yes. But the second thing I'm hearing is you would be well suited to have been one of the attorneys giving the demonstration because you already know how to project the video game yes. so everyone can see. <laughs> yes. I, I missed my very narrow calling as a video game playing lawyer. Uh, I don't know how many, how many chances, you know, in the simulation I would have gotten to do that. You're actually perfectly suited for this, and you've learned a great lesson here where if you ever get the opportunity, ask immediately. Don't delay. Yeah, and that's a lesson for the kiddos out there. Christmas is just right around the corner as well. If you want to play video games, let's get that on the list now. <laughs> Supply chain joke. Yeah. Well, there's no more time in today's show, though. And yeah. I do want to take a moment to thank Emma for being with us. Uh, it was great having you. It was a blast. Thanks, guys. And as always, thanks for being with me, Alex. A pleasure, as always. We also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Tim Ryan, and our contributing reporters, Dean Seal and Rachel Scharf. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, go leave us a written review because that really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.